0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 122, A Casual World, Part 1. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we are now into our second episode of our sixth year of doing this podcast, and I can hardly believe it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, what started is just uh, Jeff being like, hey, I want to do sound editing. You won't shut up about video game history. Why don't we do something with all that? Has now turned into six years, well over 100 episodes, Steadily growing listener base. Thank you so much, guys and gals. Yeah, here we are at the end of our four-episode march through something resembling the entire history of video games and ready to go back to something approaching our uh, usual topical content.
0: Since we're so exhausted from our long march, and if you look at any of the archival footage of the live broadcast of the four-parter, You can just see both of our slow and steady decline into madness. (laughs) Or hunger pains. One of the two. Or just plain dehydration. Or that. For this episode, we're going to take everything really, really casual. We're going to lay back, relax, pull up our drinks, kick up our feet, pet our cats, and go, All right, I have some casual games to play. I want to know about them. Why would people even play casual games? It's only for that really serious gaming connoisseur, right? Right. That whole hardcore versus casual debate.
1: This episode is covering stuff that I had hoped that we would have covered in our four-part history of everything, but it turns out that you can't cover all of video game history in four parts, or at least I can't, because I don't shut up. We kind of had to focus the end of the episode almost exclusively on advances in the AAA space, and we had to leave things out like the indie space and the casual space. Now, we're not covering the indie scene in this episode. That itself is something different, but we did want to get in something about what is generally lumped together as casual games and get a little bit of info about how that scene developed. I guess the first thing that we have to do in order to do this is kind of define what a casual game is. I'm here to tell you right now that we're not really going to define it, but we'll at least get something together that works for us.
0: At the very least, we're going to figure out a better question.
1: Right. I think it's fair to say that the whole hardcore casual thing has gotten a bit of a bad rap and a negative connotation to it in the last decade. The term casual really kind of hit peak cachet, I guess you might say, during the period of the Wii, when the whole idea of broadening who is a gamer and and broadening who is playing games kind of reached its peak mainstream levels of success. Since then, you've had other things that have gone on culturally and socially within video game circles like Gamergate and whatnot that we're not going to get into and we'll never get into because that's way too political and not so interesting for the type of history we cover we don't really get into social history very much the point is i think the idea of hardcore and casual and gamer has morphed a little and is a little bit awkward these days to talk about in strict terms when we say casual game what we're talking about is a game that is easy to pick up is easy to play and is something you can play a little bit, go do something else, play a bit, go do something else, and not have to worry about maintaining skill level or remembering where you are in a plot or stuff like that. This doesn't mean that it isn't a game that you can't play for hundreds of hours on end if you want to. Uh, We're not saying casual in the sense that you only occasionally play games. We're not even saying casual in the sense that it has to necessarily be easy. One thing that does define a casual game is there aren't complex rule sets to learn. Generally speaking, there's only a limited amount of strategy you can accomplish in a game like this as well. But that doesn't mean that there aren't tips and tricks that you can't learn, and that doesn't mean that someone with greater knowledge of this or that can't do a better job. We wouldn't call chess, for instance, a casual game, even though chess is a game that learning the basic rules is pretty simple. Even though it's one of these games where you can, yeah, just sit down with a friend and play it quickly and not have to keep your place or or that kind of thing. Something like chess, if you really actually want to play it well, takes years and years of dedicated study to master. We're talking about a class of games that is easy to pick up, easy to play, can definitely have some depth to it, but you don't need to become a super expert on something to get full enjoyment out of it or full success out of it, I suppose I should say, because there's nothing wrong with enjoying something you're not good at. Full success out of it would be a better way to put that. Something that generally appeals to a much broader audience than your regular video game does. Because even though video games are more popular than they have ever been, and even though there are games that sell millions upon millions of copies— even games that have broad-based appeal across different demographics, different genders, different age groups, etc., tend to have a small dedicated following, you know, RPGs. If you like RPGs, you're part of this group of a few million. If you like first-person shooters, you're part of this group of a few million. Whereas you can often measure these days the impact of a casual game in the uh, tens of millions or even sometimes in the hundreds of millions. There you go. That's kind of the framework for how this episode's going to proceed.
0: So, yeah, that's sort of a broad definition of what a casual or a hardcore game would be. What you're saying is that a casual game is something that's easy to pick up, fairly easy to master, something that your average Joe can be, hey, I can enjoy and have fun with this. Not someone who has to sit down and go, all right, let's get out our spreadsheets, get out our graph paper. We are going to really dive into this game and really try to understand its mechanics so that we can master it and get to the end. At least for myself, I think I fall more into the casual frame of mind as far as games go. I never really got into a lot of the mechanics, even say in many RPGs where I don't really understand or get into a lot of the mechanics and try to figure out how do I best min max or manipulate this. Most of the time, whenever I played an RPG, it was purely for a experience of the story. And that's something I've always enjoyed throughout my life is the story, a well-told story. And that's what really drew me into RPGs is just the adventure of these characters. I didn't care about the combat so much and all the rest of it. (laughs) Alice can even remember me trying to advance further on in Dragon Warrior 1 and going, you know, I'm having really trouble (laughs) saving the princess here, which I know is the next step in this story. Why am I not winning? Well, let me look. You have a copper sword, a small shield, and leather armor when you should have this flame sword, this uh, magic armor, and this silver shield. Oh. Amazing what happens when you get the proper gear and then all of a sudden magic happens and everything just starts dying because I'm way over-leveled on this weak stuff.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, and right. I mean, when, when we talk about that, I mean, you can play a so-called hardcore game casually, You can, quite frankly, play a casual game hardcore. It's it's not so much about the mindset of the player, the definition that we're working with, but it's what are you kind of expected by the developer to put into it? What can you ultimately put into it if you want to, even if you're playing an, an RPG just for the story, though you say you're not very hardcore, but... Playing Seventh Saga for the story is pretty darn hardcore, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> that is true. I uh, Seventh Saga, I don't know. It, maybe I had nothing better to do during my high school years or something. Probably didn't. Uh... <laughs> but I played that game most of the way through using two of the harder characters, the robot and the demon, through. And then I got to the point where they take away the runes. What I think is just a fascinating part about this game is that they do this whole build up thing with these runes that have power and you're trying to get them in order to become the rightful king of the or rule (laughs) the world as a result of it, and you're fighting with other champions over these runes. You become reliant on those things. They become a crux. And if you're not a min maxer like I wasn't, I just relied on those runes for everything. And then in the last like fifth of the game, they go Yeah, we're going to throw you in the past, and we're taking away all your runes. And then I go, I can't do squat. You throw me here with a barely a place to actually call a home base. I can't survive a single fight outside of the camp in order to level up or anything. I'm completely and utterly screwed here. So I had to actually wipe that save, start all the way over from the beginning... And I played it from the beginning again with the mindset of, okay, I know the runes are going to be taken away from me. I am going to find and buy everything that is a one-time-use item and max it out that can provide me the same capabilities as the runes. And I'm going to experiment with all these characters to see what spells they have in order to figure out which ones I want to use in order to actually survive long enough to get to that end game, so that when I get to that point where the runes are gone, I actually have the abilities and skills I have. I happen to pick the two characters that actually have the least spells. None of them are any kind of buffs or debuffs. So, yeah. That's a thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I owned Seven Saga back in the day. That game's hard. I mean, the main problem with it is that you only get two characters uh, at maximum at any time. It is very easy to get an unbalanced party because all these characters are good at different things. Some better at physical attack, physical defense, offensive magic, defensive magic. If you don't have that uh, completely right balance, you'll find that uh, the monsters in the game will start overwhelming you pretty quickly. There's also the other uh, really serious problem that the grind is about as ridiculous as any JRPG has ever had. Certainly JRPGs back in that 8-bit and 16-bit era were known for their grind. This is an Enix game, and Dragon Quest games were at many points very grindy back in those days. Even at that, though, it definitely has a higher level of grind even than you would normally expect to see. And in particular, it's the gear that's the problem, because gear prices go up in uh, every store, every town as you go, is typical in an RPG. But the problem is gold drops. From enemies don't, so you get to this point where an individual gear slot is going to cost you like a hundred thousand to fill that gear slot, and then mobs are like giving you a hundred gold per encounter. Yeah, that gets real messy real fast. So, yeah, definitely a hardcore game to be playing for somebody just interested in story. The point is that even if someone is playing a hardcore game casually or a casual game hardcore, the general expectation of how a game is going to go is that even something like Seventh Saga or something even easier like, say, Final Fantasy II, Final Fantasy IV in its American version, which was the easy type, or Baby's First RPG, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, even something like that, where you don't have to put nearly so much effort into mechanics. It's still something that it's understood that you have to spend a little time with figuring out systems and a little time fiddling with levels and gear and all of that, even if you don't put a lot in or the game doesn't expect a lot. Whereas what we're calling casual games today are games where you, know, you learn a few rules. Once you've learned those rules, you're set to go. Some of them, when they're multiplayer, can get a little more intense in terms of figuring out strategy, but that's true of anything. You play against another player. If all you're doing is playing against other people that aren't at a particularly high skill level, then it's very casuals. That's not a concrete definition. That's not a hard and fast definition. It's not an academic definition, but it's a definition that will get us through the next hour or so. It's good enough. That's
0: right. Okay, so since we have something resembling a definition, complete with a few little weird examples, what would you really consider to be the start of a casual game? If we look back in all of our history here, a lot of the games that a lot of the computer coders came up with that really manifested into games that we know about by our definition we just did, are hardcore. A lot of them did chess. A lot of them did puzzle games, things that involve a lot of thought, a lot of thinking involved in order to figure out how to actually beat the system and whatnot. When did we really see something that you could go, you know, that's a casual game that I'm playing on a computer, console, whatever.
1: Right. So I I really think it almost has to go the other way from what you're saying. The real question is, when did games become hardcore? The reason I say that is that these two ideas, hardcore and casual, exist in opposition to each other. To have the one, you have to have the other. In the early days of video games, you really didn't have this conception of the hardcore or of the casual. You just kind of had video games. Video games, as we discussed in our grand history of everything in one of the early episodes of it, probably the first episode, maybe the second, it doesn't matter, is that in the very early days, video games were marketed much more broadly to the public, and there was thought to be a need for a broader range of game experiences in order to get different demographics involved in game playing. Even something like Pong, the very first successful commercial video game, is something that we would call very casual today. It's one knob, you turn it one direction, Paddle goes up, you turn it the other direction, paddle goes down, paddle go up, paddle go down, paddle come back. Then you have a ball that you knock back and forth. It gets more challenging as you play. The ball speeds up, and so an element of skill comes into it. But at the end of the day, you're talking one control input, one rectangle on the screen you're controlling, and rules that are basically placed on the cabinet to avoid missing ball for high score. That would be considered casual today, but in a time when there really wasn't a hardcore versus casual kind of dichotomy, that was just a video game. It was meant to be widely appealing because you needed something that was widely or broadly appealing to introduce a new medium. Of course, before that, Nolan Bushnell had tried to do computer space. That was a disaster because it was too much, too fast. It was too, quote-unquote, hardcore for an audience that had never seen a computer game or a video game before. Too many buttons, physics, stuff shooting at you, death, you know, just too much. That, in a way, is kind of the first hardcore versus casual dichotomy, computer space versus Pong, both coming from Nolan Bushnell and friends, Ted Dabney and Al Alcorn and, and everyone else. But that's not really casual gaming because you don't have hardcore gaming yet, so you can't have casual gaming. Then when you get a long skip ahead a little bit to the first consoles coming out, the first programmable consoles, not the Pong stuff, you have, again, that broad base. And we talked about this, that they were marketing back then to the whole family. They wanted mom and dad, brother, sister, even grandma and grandpa to all sit around the console. It probably happened to some degree. I mean, one of our uh, listeners got in touch with me after those episodes Nathan Laws, who's also one of the hosts of the 42Cast, he's the one that interviewed us on 42Cast, he got in touch with me when I was talking about that kind of advertising and how I was saying, and I was being a little cynical about it in terms of, you know, they marketed this way because they felt they had to market it this way, but did they really all play it? And, and he said actually his family did when it came to the VCS. That was a system that his whole family clustered around and did play together, but that everything that came after that his parents wouldn't touch because they thought it was too complicated, you know, the NES and and everything on into the future. I think there is some truth to the fact that because that system was a simpler system and it had a simpler input, one joystick, one button, that's it. Because of the graphical limitations, there was only so much you could do with it. It did lend itself to the whole family. I still do firmly believe that the primary people playing it were the kids. Families did gather around it there you have it. We have an eyewitness account from a friend of the show that speaks to that very issue. Again, you had on those systems what you would call casual games today because they really were trying to appeal very broadly. You had card games. You had casino games. You had blackjack. You had slot machine. David Crane wrote a slot machine simulator for the Atari VCS specifically because his mother liked hitting the slots. If he created a slot machine game, She could hit the slots from the comfort of her own home without even spending any money. So, I mean, that's specifically an example of a game developer appealing to somebody that is not considered part of the traditional video game demographic and trying to get a broader appeal for the system. That slot machine program is not considered a particularly memorable or, or great VCS game today, uh, mostly because of the limitations of the system and what it could do, not because of any limitations on David Crane, who is a very talented programmer and game creator. But that just goes to show that there was this move towards inclusivity, particularly in the home, even back then in the late 70s, early 80s. In the arcade, I would say that the inclusivity thing ended pretty quickly. I mean, Pong was trying to be somewhat inclusive. Then you got hardcore games like Space Invaders and Defender. Even Pac-Man, which did have a broader appeal and was simpler in the sense that you only had one control input, a single joystick, a very straightforward goal. That is not something that we would consider truly casual, even though it was mass market, because there were patterns. There were many, many hint books written. There was a great degree of skill involved in being the best. Again, Pac-Man, a game that could be and was played casually, but that's distinct from being a casual game. Really, it's not until the mid-1980s, in my opinion, that you get something that is really, hey, this is a casual game. The reason for that is that's the period when the demographics have now hardened. So we talked about this in our second History of Everything episode. You had the crash. It was big. It was traumatic. It wiped everything out. After the crash, the mass market appeal of games was basically gone in the United States. We're largely talking about the United States here, but things are similar in other parts of the world because I think it's fair to say that in Europe... There really wasn't a mass market at this point. They had a thriving bedroom coder industry that was not affected by the crash. I would say that that was a pretty hardcore and not a very casual market from the beginning. In Japan, they never quite had the same mass market appeal. Space Invaders had mass market appeal. Pac-Man kind of did, even though it wasn't as big a craze as in the United States. After Pac-Man, that mass market had already left the Japanese Game Center. And it was already back to the hardcore even before they had some issues a few years later. While I'm talking about the U.S., it's really apropos for the entire world that there was no casual market at this time. In the U.S., once you had that big crash, everything devolved into armed camps, so to speak. When you've lost the mass market and you need to sell what you've got, you're naturally going to appeal to the hardcore at that point. because. It's the tried and true, the dedicated, the people that don't care what anyone else thinks, the people that are maybe a little more technically sophisticated when it comes specifically to computers and are already hardcore technologists in that sense. These are the people that are going to be playing your games. These are the people that are going to be buying your games when they're not pirating them. These are the people you're going to be making money on. That's when you had the real pulling back. The computer game industry in the United States, and this is peculiar to the United States, as I say every time when I say this, Europe was very different. In the United States, it ends up being an older, more tech-savvy crowd on the computers. And when I say older, I mean older relative to console players. We're talking college-age, 30s. We're not talking about seniors. Uh, with consoles do come back with the NES, 1985-86, time frame. You're really talking, as we've said before, about them capturing a 6- to 12-year-old market, and a 6- to 12-year-old market of boys, specifically. It's stuff that's meant to appeal to that demographic. You've really narrowed the scope of who's playing these games. I think that's the environment that you first really see something that you would call casual games because this is the first time that your default position isn't we want to capture as much of the market as possible. This is the first time where your default position is we need to capture our people that are already engaged. Our market is the people that are already engaged. And so you get the concept of a game that is trying to reach beyond that core audience, bring in a mass market audience, and do it with gameplay that isn't as difficult, isn't as finicky, isn't as technical.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. It's not so much the complexity of the game so much as it is the accessibility of the game. If the game is entertaining, fun, and engaging, and I can figure out how to engage with that game at a base level pretty simply and feel like I'm going to make some kind of progress in it, then that would be more casual as opposed to something that would be more hardcore where the designers intentionally sit down and go, okay, I really like complicated games, so I'm going to figure out that you might have this small little window you have to hit this sequence of buttons in, in this particular (laughs) order. You have to maximize and minimize your strength, your agility, your intelligence, then change them around to be appropriate for each fight, and I want you to try and figure that out somehow. (laughs)
1: Sure, and of course, you also have a lot of action games that are deliberately made very hard in this time period because due to memory restrictions, you can't always make games very long, so you compensate for the lack of length by making sure that you have to play through every level 200 times before you get through it. So you've got this focus on the hardcore for a variety of reasons coming in the 80s, and so that's how you get back to this idea that you need to now focus on a more casual audience as a counterbalance to that. There are a lot of places you could go to say what was first, what was this, what was that. I'm not really concerned with first, especially with something as amorphous as a casual game, which doesn't really have a standard definition. I mean, as I said, you could call Pong the first casual game if you really wanted. I think it's kind of good to look at when the idea of these kind of games as a major category came into being. I think that's our best bet. There was really one man that was responsible for this, probably more than any other individual. I wouldn't say that without him it wouldn't have happened. I mean, it's not that extreme. There was a producer at Activision by the name of Brad Freger. He's actually someone we've never talked about before. I don't even think we mentioned him when we did our Activision episode, though it's possible we did for 10 seconds. Brad Freger actually was a corporate trainer. That's how he came up through business. He had been a trainer at Atari. Then he became a trainer at Activision. Corporate trainer, of course, being someone that puts together all of the onboarding training that you do when when you start a job at a company. You know, what the company culture's like, what your job's going to be like, how the company works, all of that kind of thing. That's what he did. He was kind of the corporate trainer for Atari. had staff working for him. Then he migrated to Activision after that. When Activision decided that they wanted to start doing a producer system, which, as we've talked about before, was basically happening at the exact same time EA was doing it. We're talking the same kind of 1982-1983 time frame where Jim Levy at Activision and Trip Hawkins at EA are coming up with this producer idea at about the same time. You have Activision deciding they're going to go with a producer model because they have all these outside studios popping up and they need a way to keep an eye on them. Because Brad Freger kind of had this training and HR background, uh, Jim Levy was kind of working with him to develop the idea of what a producer would be, what that job description would look like. Because, of course, Freger, being a corporate trainer, is all about things like job descriptions and roles and all of that. As they're going through it, Brad Freger was like, Well, looking at this list of qualifications, I think I can do this. I want to do this. Hire me. Jim Levy was like, Okay. <laughs> So, Freger transitioned out of this corporate trainer role and transitioned into a producer role. He and a, another guy named Jim Charney were the first two producers that Activision hired. In this role, Freger is not really looking to expand what is a video game player or what is a computer game player at this point. He's doing the same kind of standard stuff. But of course, a big part of the producer job, particularly in this very early days, is not just that you manage projects that are already at the company. A big part of it is also that you go out and actually look for talent and find talent and sign talent. They were very much like A&R people in the record industry in that way. The role has shifted some. Producers aren't often really recruiters in that same way anymore, especially with so many projects being internal now. But that's part of what he did. A guy told him about another guy. So his friends like, there's this guy working at Stanford. Stanford University, that's doing some really interesting stuff on the computers there. I think you should talk to him. This was a gentleman by the name of Brody Lockard. Brad calls up Brody and is like, yeah, I hear I should talk to you. And he's like, yeah, I have some ideas to run by you and whatnot. And he's like, well, uh, you know, why don't we do breakfast tomorrow, you know, 8 a.m. Brody's like, yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it can be a little hard for me with my wheelchair to get to places. We can pick a place. And so they picked a place that would be okay for him. Then they're like, let's meet. And it's great. Then Brad, he completely spaced on the meeting. Completely just forgot that he had scheduled the meeting. Oh, dear. So he gets a call from Brody. And it's like, did I get the day wrong? Because I was there for an hour and you didn't show up. He was polite. He owned up to it. I mean, he just forgot. Nothing malicious, nothing political. He just totally forgot. Now he's feeling bad. So he feels obligated to have a meeting. They set up another meeting for like a week, this time at Brody's house, or rather Brody's parents' house, mother's house, where he lives. He goes to the meeting, and that's when he really learns the full story of Brody Lockard. There was that reference to the wheelchair in their initial conversation. Brody was actually a quadriplegic. What had happened, he was the son of an architecture professor at the University of Arizona. Brody Lockard is the son of an architecture professor at the University of Arizona, he had gone to Stanford to be an English major, but decided that there'd be better career prospects in math and computer science. He decided to go that route instead. In his, Cameron it was his sophomore his junior year, but partway through his time at the school, he learned about the Plato system, which we've talked about before, the revolutionary educational system with the time-sharing and the terminals and the plasma screens and the multiplayer games and all of that. He learned about the Plato system from a friend but Stanford didn't actually have a connection to Plato, most likely because Stanford was working on some similar kind of educational time shared projects, probably political pressure from the people involved in those projects not to get connected to the Plato system, which was a University of Illinois initiative. Because his father was a professor at Arizona, Arizona did have a Plato hookup, a Plato connection. He spent the whole summer between, I believe it was his sophomore and his junior year at the University of Arizona with a Play-Doh account and just programming on Play-Doh and getting involved in the community and all of this kind of thing. In addition to being a math science guy, he's also an athlete. He's also a very good gymnast. He's actually on the Stanford gymnastics team. Early in his, I think it was early, in his junior year, he was just doing routine tumbling practice using a trampoline. You launch yourself off the trampoline and then there's a pit full of foam and other stuff to break your fall. It turns out that the gymnastics coach had done a strange jury rig thing for the foam pit rather than a good professional installation. He took a tumble off the trampoline into the pit, except he hit a portion of the pit that essentially had no foam at all. He suffered a serious spinal injury and he has been a quadriplegic ever since. That's horrible. Yeah, I know. It is horrible. But he's also an inspiration because Brody was determined to continue programming. He was determined to continue to be involved in that world because the, the damage was all physical. He didn't suffer brain damage. He was still the same smart, inquisitive person he had been before the accident. He just couldn't move anything below the neck. He convinced a Plato rep to get a terminal installed in the hospital. First they looked into maybe I could buy a Plato terminal and hook it up and of course the costs for that were ludicrous because that kind of stuff really wasn't meant for individuals it was meant for institutions. So the costs were way too prohibitive but then he told the one Plato rep his story and the Plato rep was so moved that she just said you can use my terminal. As she said in interviews later she was like I know the company would have never approved of this. So whenever they asked, I would just tell them, oh, it's on loan. She was personally moved by his story. So they actually hooked up a Play-Doh terminal in his hospital room. He was hospitalized for nine months. This was really serious. As he says, they probably added the phone charges to his hospital bill, (laughs) which was a very large hospital bill already, of course, because of all the special equipment and whatnot he needed. But the hospital agreed to let him run a phone line to the room for the Play-Doh terminal and have the Play-Doh terminal in there. He built this thing where he could hold a stylus in his mouth. He programmed on Play-Doh one button press at a time with a mouth stylus.
0: That is a challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. That is dedication, and I can't even imagine.
0: I'd get frustrated just trying to do some of that with two hands and typing. I can only <laughs> imagine the amount of dexterity you have to have with your mouth to type like that, all the mistakes you're going to make, the learning curve, the slow tedium of it. Yep. Yeah. I know with Stephen Hawking, his disease before he passed was practically to the point where he was a shut-in, and I recall hearing that he was mentally ahead trying to transcribe all of these mathematics way far ahead, and he's trying to get these mathematics and formulae and papers and stuff down with an assistant. He's like a few months behind in this sort of like transcription process. The amount of dedication people like that have is inspiring. Frankly, I don't think if I think if I was in that state, I would not have the constitution to do that.
1: I don't know that I would either. I mean, that is truly exceptional. He was a programmer and he continued to work on things at Stanford after he got out of the hospital. Yeah, so Brad Freger, to get back to our framing story here, Brad Freger goes and meets him and of course discovers all of this stuff about him that he didn't know before their meeting. So now he feels doubly bad that he stood him up because, you know, he heard the wheelchair thing. He kind of knew it was kind of difficult for Brody to get out. But it was really difficult for Brody to put in the effort to get out and meet him at that restaurant. (laughs) He just completely stood him up. So he's feeling guilty at this point. So they discuss some things that Brody's working on. But the stuff Brody's working on at Stanford is really... It's, you know, it's, it's applications, it's academic stuff. It's really nothing that would fit into what Activision is doing as a game company. Because he feels guilty and everything, Brad says to Brody, but if you ever come up with a game or anything like that, call me and we'll publish it. And he basically made a promise that they'd publish anything he comes up with. I mean, it's not a binding contract, but he's feeling bad at this point. So about six months later, he gets a call from Brody and Brody says, I've got a game I'd like to show you. This is right in the middle of CES preparations. It's like, it's December. Of course, there's the holidays, plus the big CES show is in January, and they're getting ready for that. It's just a messy time. So the only time that Brad has free is Christmas Eve, just because he's so busy. So he asks, well, can we do a Christmas Eve? And Brody's okay with that. He goes over to Brody's place again, and Brody shows him a game based on Mahjong. When he was in the hospital, getting back to our Brody story again, One of the hospital staff actually introduced him to the game of Mahjong. He'd never played it before, and he really fell in love with the game while he was at the hospital. He actually programmed a version of Mahjong Solitaire variant called the Turtle on the Play-Doh system. The Turtle is a format where you stack the uh, Mahjong blocks somewhat in the shape of a turtle, and then you have to locate matching pairs within your stack to match them and eliminate them and look for another matching pair and take them off until you've hopefully cleared the entire turtle. Brody created a version of this and called it Shanghai, is the name he gave this game. He kind of figured, you know, he liked the turtle variation of Mahjong. It's such a pain to set it up when you're using the Mahjong tiles. He was like, well, this is something that would be great for a computer because you don't need an AI, it's a solitaire game. The computer can just rapidly set up all the tiles and then you just match and match and match until you remove them. He created this on Play-Doh. By this time, then he had migrated it to, I believe the Macintosh, but migrated it to a microcomputer platform. So here's the other part of the Brody Lockhart story of programming that's amazing. Are you familiar with the game Shanghai? Have you played it in one of its forms? I have not. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Mahjong tiles in general, just broadly?
0: I've never played it. I know in general you have like this big board, you have tiles. There's usually like two, Mm -hmm. three, four, five layers of tiles. Right. You do something with them, you match tiles or something and pull them off or something like that. Exactly. Or like a hunt and peck pair thing.
1: You've seen Mahjong tiles, right? Even if just pictures of them or something.
0: Yeah, so there's usually, for lack of better terminology, Chinese character, Japanese character, some kind Mm -hmm. of character.
1: Exactly. Both the Play-Doh system with its plasma screen and the microcomputer platforms like the Macintosh that he ported it to are graphical systems. He actually represented those individual Shanghai, those individual Mahjong tiles graphically. He drew all of those graphics using his stylus, just like he typed in programs with his stylus. The graphics in the original Shanghai, which of course we'll put in the show notes when you look at those graphics and look at those tiles, Those were created by a quadriplegic using nothing but his mouth and a stylus.
0: I haven't seen these pictures yet. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be amazed. Yeah, so it's an incredible
1: story. So on that Christmas Eve, Brad comes over and Brody shows him the game. It's it's very different from the kind of things that Activision is doing, right? Because it's just this solitaire matching game. There's really no strategy to it. I mean, it's random. I don't know how random. I don't know what the setup is, but it's semi-random or completely random which tiles are there. And all you're doing is, like you were saying earlier, you're just hunting and pecking and looking for matches and clearing them. It's not the type of game that you're used to where there's like an action component or there's a strategy component or there's a puzzle-solving component. Brad wasn't really sure that this was going to be a fit. He still, at this point, felt really obligated to Brody because of that botched meeting six months previous. He said, I'll take it and we'll think about it. So he brought it home and told his wife, like, hey, check this out. His wife just sat down and started playing and just would not stop, just kept playing. At some point, his mother, uh, he introduced it to, and his mother would just play it nonstop. And so he was like, "Okay, there's something here, isn't there? So he brought it into Activision, his employer everyone who got a hold of it there would get hooked. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know exactly why we like games like that, but I think there's something in the human psyche that just so loves bringing order to chaos. You have this mess of different pictures and images and whatnot, and there's something so satisfying, gives the human brain such a dopamine hit, when you can organize that stuff and make it make sense and clear it away. It's very similar to solitaire or minesweeper games that we'll be talking about in a moment, too. There's just something primal about that in the human psyche, don't you think?
0: At least to a certain extent. It's a distraction, I think, even especially more for adults. And then I say for kids. I mean, as a kid, I really hated those kind of games. But as an adult, right. I can more appreciate them because it harkens back to a simplicity and has enough mental engagement that you can sort of disconnect from the world in a way that you typically can't with other kinds of entertainment media. And it engages you enough that you go, all right, my whole mental faculties is here looking for these tiles, matching them up, bringing them in. I'm not thinking about what's going on in the world. I'm not thinking about how am I going to get dinner onto the table. I'm not thinking about that report I have to write. I'm just... In the moment, and there's something very liberating about living in the moment.
1: It's just complicated enough to distract your brain from whatever else is going on, but not so complicated that you get frustrated with it. So it becomes a new stressor. It's that perfect amount of clearing out the clutter in your brain, you know, kind of like what you were saying. So they end up publishing Shanghai in 1986. It just becomes a massive, massive hit. They end up porting it all over the place. They port it to console systems as well as other computers. They port it to the Game Boy for the same reasons as Tetris, which we've talked about before. It's just really well suited to the Game Boy. You lose some of the color of the tiles, but it's the kind of game that's good to go portable. It sold 500,000 units on computer platforms alone by 1991 which is a ridiculously great number of copies for a computer game in that time period. Activision decided to do a sequel a couple of years later that added a couple of variant game modes and also did well. Then another producer, Brad Freger, had left the company by this point. Another producer named Tom Sloper took over the product, and Tom Sloper had spent a lot of time in Japan and was a huge Mahjong player already. So he spent the next decade plus, keeping that franchise going. It became a really evergreen franchise for the company. I really think that this is the first kind of aha moment on casual games, the aha moment of the kind of gameplay that's going to pull in an adult. Because even though there'd been card games before that, uh, there'd even been some Mahjong games before that. This was kind of the moment where the market took off for this kind of game at the exact moment where the market needed to expand in this way. And so just it was the perfect congruence of factors. Brad Freger is responsible for that for a large degree. I mean, obviously, Brody Lockhart deserves all the credit in the world for not only deciding to turn this into a computer game, but putting in all of that time to turn it into a computer game, which is just amazing with his circumstances. Freger is the one that then brought it to a wider world because he gave it a publisher. It had been on Play-Doh before that. I want to be clear on that. The Activision version wasn't the first time it had ever been put on a computer. This is the first time that it was put on a mass market home computer, and it just exploded. After that, Freger is starting to look out for these kind of games more. Freger actually leaves Activision soon after this to set up his own independent company which had the very uh, generic name of Publishing International. Basically, it was Freger doing little game projects that he would sell on to other publishers and working with a lot of people that he knew from his Activision days, some of which were employed by Publishing International, some of which were contractors. He had all these contacts. Activision was in this period where it wasn't doing as well and was also starting to change. We talked about the whole mediogenic era in another episode, so he decides to go out and do his own thing. Well, then, as he tells the story, his father was kind of grumbling to him. Your mother plays the Shanghai game all day, and I just don't understand. And I'm not saying that Shanghai is a gendered game in any way. It's just that, for whatever reason, in the Fregger family, his mother was really into it, and his father was like, I just don't get it. That got Brad Freger thinking, okay, well, clearly we've tapped into a game that older people, that less computer-savvy people are very interested in playing and can get very addicted to. But it's not getting everybody, (laughs) because my father's like, what the heck? So he started thinking, well, what would be a game that maybe I could get my father to play? He hit on the idea of good old Klondike Solitaire. Solitaire has many of those same characteristics as Shanghai does, because first of all, it's a game that's a little bit of a pain to set up when you're using real cards. It's not as much of a pain as building the turtle for Shanghai, for Mahjong would be you still have to shuffle the cards and you have to deal them out in a specific way and all of that. And then it's kind of a pain when you're shifting cards around and putting them on top of each other. So it's the kind of game that makes sense to translate to the computer because it takes the annoying parts of it out. We haven't talked about this much before, but you know, one of the signs that Atari was really going off the rails in the early 1980s is that they decided to do a Rubik's Cube game. Now, they did Rubik's Cube because... That was right after the Rubik's Cube was invented and there was a ridiculous Rubik's Cube craze. When I mean there was a ridiculous craze, I mean there was a Saturday morning cartoon where the Rubik's Cube was the hero. We'll put that in the show notes.
0: You know, I think I might have actually seen an episode of that.
1: (laughs) So the
0: reason Atari
1: did a Rubik's Cube product for the VCS is because, I mean, the craze was huge. When there's a cartoon, that means something's happening here. And Obviously, it was a very short-lived fad. The problem with putting the Rubik's Cube on the VCS is it is much more annoying manipulating a Rubik's Cube with joystick moves and button presses than it is to just twist a Rubik's Cube with your hands.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean,
1: if you're adapting something from another realm, whether it be pen and paper, board, card, tile, etc., if your computerized version is going to be more of a pain than the physical version— don't do it.
0: I'll just keep the physical version and be done with it.
1: Right, but the thing about both Shanghai and Klondike Solitaire is both of these have elements in their physical form that are somewhat annoying that the computer can get rid of. No more stacking tiles. No more shuffling cards. No more stacking cards on top of each other. The computer's done that. You don't have to load this. We did that for you. Press A. Exactly. So Solitaire is another game that lends itself. And of course, card games are widely popular. It's got that same kind of feel that Shanghai has of bringing order to chaos and matching things together. Because, of course, in Klondike Solitaire, you're trying to create strings of cards in numerical order, alternating between black and red cards until you can finally get all of the cards stacked in their own separate piles in numerical order by suit. I know that's a kind of half hour explanation of Solitaire, but I think just about anybody out there knows what Solitaire is at this point. So we'll, we'll just go with that.
0: And if you don't know what it is and you have a Windows system, it's
1: there for you. We're getting there. We're definitely getting there. So he decides the next thing he'll do is do Solitaire. He gets together some people that he knows to program Solitaire. He pitches it to the company Spectrum Holobyte, which we've done an episode on, just another publisher in the computer game space where he knew people. They were like, okay, cool, we'll do this. So in 1987, they released Solitaire Royale on the Macintosh. Solitaire Royale was not the very first Solitaire card game. There had been some Apple II Solitaire games. There had been some DOS Solitaire games. Not Microsoft, we're getting there, from some other people. But of course, the Macintosh had that GUI interface, which those other systems didn't. You could do point-and-click, you know, I mean, the original Macintosh was black and white, but even in a, on a black and white Macintosh, it had higher resolution graphics. It had nicer graphics, so the cards could look really nice, even if you were playing on a black and white Macintosh instead of a color. It had some appeal that I don't think any other solitaire game had had before that. It didn't become as big a deal as Shanghai did, because Shanghai, I think, had the added allure of being something people weren't familiar with in the West, in addition to everything else. It did okay. It did pretty well. Now, transfer over to Microsoft. Microsoft, of course, during this period of time, has been developing its Windows operating system. There had been a game in Windows since Windows 1.0, and that game was uh, Reversi, which is a board game, which is sort of a combination of Checkers and Go. Its board setup is very similar looking to kind of a checkers setup. The rules are a little closer to Go, though they're much simpler than Go. Go is a very, very complex game. Reversi is a very simple game. It's meant to be a little casual game. Basically, one of the programmers on the Windows team, Chris Peters, when they were first working on Windows in 1984, when he was kind of first working on it as they were working towards 1.0, This is something new to Microsoft entirely, a graphical user interface. They're trying to figure out, how do we do this? They're trying to figure out, how do we show other developers how to do this? How you work in a GUI environment, how you program applications in a GUI environment. There's just all of the stuff that's new, not quite new to the world, because GUIs had been around, but new to Microsoft and Microsoft partners. Chris Peters just programmed this reversi game because he needed to test and learn about Windows application programming. No greater reason for it than that. And then Tandy Trower, who was the producer, uh, the project manager of Windows, decided, well, you know, we've got this game. It's kind of fun. We might as well put it in. Windows 1 and Windows 2 had this reversi game, and it wasn't any kind of phenomenon. It was just kind of there. I mean, it wasn't promoted as anything, but here's a little game you can fool around. and move stuff around with your mouse, and isn't that delightful? Now fast forward to Windows 3. Windows 3 and its successor, Windows 3.1, that's really the point when Windows became Windows. Windows 1 and Windows 2 were very clunky. They had lots of problems, including lots of memory problems. Windows 3 also has memory problems, but Windows 1 and 2 are even worse. They're slow, they're clunky, they don't get widely adopted. Some businesses are using them, they don't really get adopted in the home at all. People are basically sticking to DOS. It's kind of a disaster. Windows 3 is when Windows finally gets good enough and competent enough that people are now starting to use Windows as their default environment. Obviously, there's still a lot of DOS legacy, particularly in games, until Windows 95 finally solves most of the most serious memory problems that Windows has going for it. Windows 3 and 3.1 is when you start seeing it on people's machines, ordinary people's machines. At that point, they decide, we want to actually do a couple of games, a couple of simple games, because we want to show ordinary people that this is a platform for ordinary people and not just fancy business users or whatever. So at this point, they consciously decide to create a game, and a guy named Wes Cherry decides to create a solitaire game after, in his words, seeing a solitaire game on the Macintosh. Now, in the very few interviews I've seen about this, because there really isn't a lot of information out there about this, he doesn't give the name of the game, but I think it had to be Solitaire Royale. The time frame is right, and he said it was on the Macintosh, Looking at Moby Games' list of Solitaire games, there were no other Solitaire games on the Macintosh at that time. Now, for something piddly like Solitaire, Moby Games' games database isn't necessarily complete. Maybe somebody put out a little shareware thing or something, so it's possible he saw something else. But I'm willing to say with a reasonable degree of confidence that West Cherry saw Solitaire Royale. That's why he decided to do a Klondike Solitaire game for Windows. That's why Solitaire took over the world in the way it did. Because, of course, Solitaire is not quite standard anymore because Windows has gotten weird with Windows 10 and the way it does games. In Windows 3, 3 3.1, 95, 98, 2000, ME, etc., etc., XP7, Clown Suit, also known as 8, all had a free version of Solitaire in there. And that became something that people would love playing in a few spare moments or... Maybe surreptitiously bringing up at the office and having going in the corner and you quickly minimize when the boss walks by. It just became a ubiquitous game on a ubiquitous platform. Really showed again that this whole casual thing is a real thing. That you can expand the audience to all ages, all backgrounds, all experiences. By giving a game that is relatively easy to learn, relatively simple to master but still occupies enough of your brain power that it serves as a perfect distraction or time waster when you're feeling a little bored with stuff. West Cherry is also the one that comes up with the brilliant idea of why don't we have the cards all cascade down the screen when you win the game. Solitaire Royale did not have that. That is definitely very much a, a Microsoft Solitaire kind of thing. So they do Solitaire, then in Windows 3.1 they had Minesweeper. Suddenly we are off to the races. Windows 3.0 comes in 1990. There's another thing that's happening around the same time that also really crystallizes the casual game, and that is, of course, Tetris. We will not do the Tetris story again in this episode. That would be
0: very silly. We have a wonderful episode all ready for you to listen to about Tetris. Exactly. Tetris happens at the
1: same time In this very same time frame that Shanghai is happening, that Solitaire Royale is happening, that Microsoft Windows Solitaire is happening, all happening at the same time. Because, of course, uh, it comes out initially on computer platforms through the same Spectrum Holobyte that released Solitaire Royale in 1987. Then it hits the Game Boy in 1989, and it's bundled with the Game Boy, and it becomes really the poster child for what mobile gaming is great for. You know, you can just have that with you when you're out and about, when you're on a trip, when you're waiting in the airport, you're waiting in a long line (laughs) at customs or, or whatever. You can just have that out, play it for a few minutes, get that satisfaction of clearing a few rows, then put it away and not worry about it again or not think about it again until the next time you have a few spare moments. Yeah, that's the other great thing about it. There's no progression, really. Yes, you can get better at Tetris. You can get higher scores. You can get to higher levels of difficulty. Really, at the end of the day, it's just doing the same thing over and over again with maybe it getting a little faster as you go or upping the difficulty by having, you know, a few lines already at the bottoms, half built up so you have less maneuverability. It's not a game you're worrying about progressing in. It's like RPGs, you're in the middle of a story, even if it's an easy RPG and you're just doing it for the story, it's still like, oh, you know, there's what happens next. Then for some reason you can't play it for five months if you're a busy, responsible adult and then you try to come back to it and it's like, what was going on? oh, I guess I might as well just start over. I'm not saying everybody does this, but then some people you know, get in a cycle where you're just starting over like every five months and you never actually progress. Or there's action games where if you stop playing it for a bit, even if you got good at it, you kind of forget that muscle memory, you forget those reflexes and now you can't get as far. But something like Tetris, even though it has more of a challenge component to it than Shanghai or Solitaire do, there is a physical reflex component where if you're not recognizing things and maneuvering things, the game's going to end, as opposed to Solitaire, where, yeah, you're going to lose most of the time, but you're not going to lose due to reflexes. You can stare at your cards for 20 minutes between every turn, and, you know, it won't really have an impact on whether you win or lose the game. Even something like Tetris that's a little more skill-based is still very casual because you have this idea that the gameplay is very easy to pick up and it remains the same, so I play it five minutes here, maybe I don't play it again for a month and I play it another 15 minutes, it's fine, I can go back to it. It's comforting. Solitaire, Shanghai, and Tetris between them in this period between 1986 and 1990 really established the idea that you can have casual games. In this time period, there's still a lot of constraint to that okay, so you're in front of your computer and you have a few spare moments, so you boot up Shanghai. Fine. How often do you really just have a few spare moments sitting in front of your computer? And I'm talking in the year 1986. I'm not talking today. Most of the time, if you're playing something like Shanghai, you are actually really deciding that I'm going to play Shanghai for a while. I'm going to go to my computer and I'm going to play Shanghai. Even Tetris on the Game Boy, let's not forget that the early Game Boys were very bulky. Yeah, you might take them on a train trip or a plane trip. Most adults are probably not just carrying around in their purse or their briefcase or their pants pocket and are just like, well, I'm going to be here in the waiting room for a while. I might as well pull out the Game Boy and play Tetris. I'm sure some people did that, but I doubt that that was the main mode of operation. So you have casual games. You have a broadening of the audience. You have games like Tetris and Shanghai selling in very big numbers on their platforms relative to other games. But you don't quite have that ubiquity yet of casual games, which I think it's fair to say exists today. So when we pick this up in part two of our look at the broad history of casual games, we're going to go ahead and take this base that we built here and kind of this beginning of the concept And we're going to evolve it to today, where basically, in line at Chipotle for five minutes? Eh, play some Candy Crush. How we get from Shanghai to Candy Crush, or Tetris to Candy Crush, will be the subject of conversation in part two. Because you know we can't do any broad topic in just a single episode.
0: We can't do a broad topic in a single episode? We just need to get you more concise, man.
1: What's the point? That's what the podcast format is for.
0: Really? What about all the space? We'll deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we will continue the story into casual gaming next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book... They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.